Welcome to another edition of the And You Shall Know That I Am Yahweh, an Ezekiel podcast. I'm Ethan. Very glad that you've joined us. Thank you for the gift of spending time as we seek to explore what God has made known through the prophet Ezekiel. We pick up in chapter 14 and in verse 1. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, Yahweh, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, Yahweh, will answer him myself. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword, and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, Yahweh, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him, and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. That the house of Israel may no more go astray from me, nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, declares the Lord Yahweh. Now Ezekiel here is... uh, Again, it's very constrained in terms of time. Uh, we got the last time marker in chapter 8. Uh, it's the sixth year and the sixth month when he saw the vision uh, of Jerusalem in chapters 8 through 11. And the next time stamp isn't going to come until chapter 20, which is the seventh year in the fifth month. So this is all from 592 to 591. And it, we don't know exactly how quickly it comes into succession, uh, one after the other, but it's all part of the same coherent picture. And as after we saw that vision of Jerusalem, in which Ezekiel is invited to see the types of things going on in Jerusalem, which involves a lot of uh, service of idols and, and such abominations, he sees the signs of judgment on Jerusalem and the departure of the glory of Yahweh from Jerusalem, and thus God removing his presence from among his people. He's then come back in, in his full sense, and he has symbolized the captivity uh, of, of Judah and the, egg, the attempt of the king to flee in chapter 12, and the fact that they would be in a trembling, terrified position from the siege and also. And in chapter 13, we saw that he started condemning the false prophets, uh, and we were asking the question of how things have gotten to the point they are, and why don't the Israelites listen to the prophets, and we found out they do listen to prophets, they're just not listening to the faithful prophets, they're listening to the false prophets, who tell them things more in line with what they want to hear and what their theology uh, it makes comfortable. And we saw that that was true with the men, and also the women who are making these kind of uh, amulets that are supposed to provide magical powers or to ward off evil powers and would provide some level of protection. And so now we see uh, that the elders are being condemned. So we have an indictment of the king, an indictment of false prophets, male and female, and now I have a kind of an indictment of these elders. And the elders are standing right in front of him. So this would have probably been a very awkward moment of condemnation since the, the, the condemnation is coming right 
uh, to these men. Elders are older men, but also men of some authority who are looked to to govern the people and to uh, help guide them. And we have to remember this is the time of the prophets. Um, we are so familiar with the idea if we want to learn something about what God intends that we turn to reading what he has made known in scripture and then we go through interpretive processes and then application processes. Uh, whereas at this time, and as it has been for a time immemorial in Israelite history, whereas the law exists, the primary means of finding out about uh, somebody's personal circumstance is that a person would go and inquire of a prophet. And then the prophet with us says, thus says the Lord Yahweh, kind of like what Ezekiel is doing here and provides some kind of message. And so we see that this is what God's talking about. These elders are coming to inquire of Yahweh. They want to know from Ezekiel what God's word is for their circumstance. But God sees there's this hindrance here, that they have these idols in their heart. And so they've got this source of iniquity and stumbling block before them. And these idols are very likely maybe some of the gods of the nations. Uh, we should certainly not deny that prospect and possibility. Uh, but it also could be greed, a desire for oppression, uh, other types of things that we would recognize more in the idols of our modern world uh, that also could be uh, providing these hindering blocks and difficulties. And he, these idols in the heart are the things that the heart is seeking after, that the, the, the heart is worshiping. And so we can see the point of continuity here uh, with our current age, where if we think we can stand before God and that God's going to bless us and guide us and direct our way, but yet our heart is full of these idols. Uh, it, may, again, it may not be Marduk, it may not be Baal, but it certainly could be the, the love of money, uh, desire to pursue the passions, uh, fame, uh, even just a high opinion of ourselves and, and our opinions, and so on and so forth. Um, we're going to have God turn against us because we're not really serving God, we're serving the things God has made. And that does not give glory and honor to God. And that's why Ezekiel calls upon Israel to repent, to turn their hearts minds, to turn away from their idols and from their abominations. And even though they may have come to him while having these idols in their hearts, he said, oh, I'll answer you, but I'm going to be against that man. What's interesting, though, here is that you have this kind of uh, valence here, though, because he'll also say that if that prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I have deceived that prophet. I will stretch out my hand, and I will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. Which is very interesting in light of the argument that was being made in earlier times, where we were seeing that you have these false prophets who say, well, Yahweh has spoken to me, but Yahweh had not spoken to him. And here we see that there might be a prophet who's deceived, the prophet who says, well, here's the word of Yahweh, but uh, Yahweh's the one who's deceived that prophet. And that's one of those situations that we're very uneasy with. Well, what does it mean that Yahweh has deceived the prophet? How could Yahweh do such a thing? Well, we can go back to that story of Micaiah, son of Imla, uh, before Ahab in 1 Kings, where Ahab uh, is being induced by all these prophets to go fight against the Arameans at Ramoth Gilead, and it was going to lead to his death. And in fact, that in that heavenly scene that Micaiah sees, Micaiah sees that God is sending deceitful spirits to tell Ahab to do this, to lead to his destruction, which might be very much like what Ezekiel is saying here. And this is where, again, we have to step back and we have to give space to God's inscrutable ways and to understand that some of the deceptions we see in the world might actually come originally from God, but what God is doing is not trying to 
cause faithful people to, stri- to, to slip, but it's just that it's those who have already uh, given themselves over to iniquity are just being justified in their iniquity. And it's a hard thing, and we're not about to try to uh, or to um, resolve all of the tensions and challenges that, that might cause in our theology, but it's worth noting it and to be willing to sit in it and not just try to easily dismiss it away. But the core of this, con- this, this portion here is really talking about how God recognizes the people are in their idolatry, and they're going to be judged for that idolatry. They come to him, they're going to hear a word, they're going to be judged, they're going to be uh, condemned, all those who have led Israel astray and are astray. And um, the goal is, in the end, that Israel would no longer go away from him and not defile themselves anymore, but they would be his people and he would be their God. Uh, Just that great covenant language that we will see uh, over and over and over again in the future when God is reinforcing uh, his relationship with Israel and what he will do to Israel in the latter days. Verse 12, And the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, when the land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and sand famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Danel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver their own li- they would deliver, but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord Yahweh. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and then they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, Let a sword pass through that land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, they will deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Danel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, they will deliver neither son nor daughter, they will deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you, and you shall see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord Yahweh. So we have another word of Yahweh to Ezekiel. And this one, we have a lot of backstory to understand the point of it. So throughout this passage, we see that there is this judgment coming upon Jerusalem. And it's a fourfold judgment. uh, Sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. This is very much in concert with what we saw in chapter 5 and uh, about the various forms of ways that Israelites would be killed um, and the message throughout that the siege is coming to Jerusalem. You're going to have widespread death devastation. It's going to be a horrifying thing. And so we see when it comes to the judgments of God, we, we, we always want to see why certain people make it and certain people don't. And so there becomes this kind of rationalizations. And one of the important things and themes we see throughout the, uh, the, the Hebrew Bible is the idea that God is going to rescue the righteous man in his righteousness. And rescue in the Old Covenant is very physical and concrete. Rescue looks like you, as a human being, are able to stay alive, your enemies have been defeated, 
Uh, true prosperity looks like what Job ends up with. Job's one of the men mentioned here. Uh, what does Job have in the end? He has a wife, he has sons and daughters, he has great wealth. The sons and daughters are a promise of generations and that he will see future generations, that his line will not be extinguished. That's what redemption looks like in the Old Covenant. And so what Ezekiel is trying to point out here is the very solemn nature of this, the very disastrous nature of this judgment coming upon Israel. Because you reason from that, that the sons of the righteous person are going to be in a position where they are going to be rescued, maybe not because of their own virtue, but because of the righteousness of the Father. Like uh, the reason that God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the Israelites, and maintained those promises, uh, even though Israel seemed less than faithful at all points. So you can understand that line of logic. But what Ezekiel now does, he kind of turns the tables on that to show the nature of this disaster. And he says, if we had these three righteous men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, and these were the ones that were seen as just paragons of righteousness, um, and so if anybody's children were going to be spared because of the righteousness of their father, it would be the sons of Noah, Dan, El, and Job. And yet we see here in, in repetition uh, that if it's um, famine, if it's wild beasts, if it's a sword, only those three men's souls would be saved. They would, the only, they would be the only ones spared from the famine, from the wild beasts, from the sword, that their children would not be spared because of them. And so that's showing that this is a very sharp and harsh judgment. And it's going to lead into what we see in chapter 18. And what we're going to see uh, become a very prominent theme uh, in, in our own preaching and teaching, which is that God doesn't have any grandchildren. And the idea is that it is not enough that a father is faithful, that the son must maintain the faithfulness of the father if he would see life. And that uh, that's why we say God has no grandchildren, that every single generation must become children of God in and of themselves if they're going to be saved. And that's a very important in, in point. We're going to have a lot to say when we get to chapter 18 about how it's taken two extremes, uh, but that we don't want to miss the point there that, that Ezekiel's giving, which is something Israel needs to hear, that you can't just skate through on your daddy's coattails. Uh, and that can be... Uh, a difficulty if you know you've got some really great righteous father, but it also provides hope and redemption uh, for those whose fathers may not be so righteous, and therefore their heritage may not be as pleasant. Uh, we do need to talk about, of course, uh, Dan L, because in your Bibles, even here in the English Standard, you see Daniel. Uh, in the Hebrew text, uh, we have what's called from the Masoretes. Now, the Masoretes are the uh, Jewish scribes who are uh, copying the text and who maintain a lot of textual notes. Uh, and they're doing this in the time of the first millennium. And so we see that they have maintained what's called a kativ and a kare. Uh, the kativ is what is written, and that's what they have found in the text. And the kare is what is read. Uh, and that's what the, when the Masoretes think that the text has been corrupted in some way, and so they're amending the text based upon what they think is in it. Now, a lot of the times, the, the kativ kare, the kare makes sense, and that you would go with it. Now, in this situation, the kativ, what is written is Dan El. What is Kare, what is to be said, is Daniel. Um, and we can understand why that is. When you're looking in the, New in the Old Testament, you don't see a guy named Dan L. But you see Daniel. 
Daniel is a late contemporary of Ezekiel. As we said, Daniel was exiled the same time as Ezekiel. It's very likely that the exiles would have known about Daniel and Daniel's righteousness uh, as uh, these events are taking place. But when we've discovered the uh, documents that came out of Ugarit, which was a Canaanite city, the Bronze Age, uh, so uh, the literature that we found there dates from about 15, 1800 to 1200 BC, so, you know, granted about 600 years earlier, but we have found in it the tale of Achat. And the tale of Achat, we learn about this extremely righteous ruler named Dan El. And he was very famous as a very righteous man, a righteous ruler, a paragon of righteousness, very much like Noah and Job. And there's various arguments, therefore. The argument for Dan El being the, the person that Ezekiel is talking about here is pretty strong. Why? Number one, Noah and Job, we note, are both people who are righteous. You know, Noah from the Genesis story, Job from the book with his name, but neither of them are considered Israelites. Noah is, of course, before then. Job also might well be before then, uh, but where Job lives is not what you would expect from an Israelite. The other time we're going to see Daniel show up, Daniel, Daniel, is uh, later on in the prophecies regarding Tyre. And Whereas we might have an expectation that the exiles might know about Daniel, we should have no expectation that the king of Tyre would know who Daniel is, or that a reference to Daniel would be of any value or importance to him. And so both of those things put together really help us understand this is this righteous figure from the past called Dan L, and that what Ezekiel is doing is he's just making reference to three commonly known paragons of righteousness. Uh, and not only paragons of righteousness, but also uh, where sons play prominently. You think about all three of these men. Noah, uh, it is his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, through whom all humanity is going to be restored after the flood. Uh, Job, uh, part of the uh, condemnation that he feels, the suffering he has from the hands of Satan, is that his children are killed. And part of his restoration by God is that his sons and he has sons and daughters again. And the story of Dan L, Dan L is a righteous ruler, but he has no child. And this is what, you know, male's child, and this is what really grieves him. And um, Achat becomes the son that is born to him in his old age, and then Achat will be killed under uh, difficult circumstances with uh, the gods and things of that nature. Uh, and so children pl pl play a very prominent role in these stories, and so that helps to explain why they're uh, here. And, and that you know, when even though covenant blessings for these people are children, those children are not going to be spared because of the magnitude of this disaster and because of the judgment against sin. And so it's also an implicitly there a critique of the Israelite worldview that says, all right, all right, all right, fine. So, you know, the righteous are going to live and their children are going to live because the righteous are going to be spared. And we already saw in Ezekiel's uh, image of the tavification in Jerusalem, the people are going to be spared. Uh, but, you know, uh, they might be spared by their righteousness. Their children are not going to be spared unless the children themselves are righteous, unless the children also have been groaning uh, and lamenting over all of the uh, abominations being done in the city. And that's the critique that Ezekiel's making here. And this final point here is incredibly dark uh, in its own way, that the survivors that are going to come out, the survivors that are going to come out of this destruction of Jerusalem, and when you see them, Ezekiel is told, you will be consoled for the disaster. How is that comforting? Well, when you see the people who come out, the people who survive, maybe because of who they are, how they look, 
all the experiences that they've had, when you see their ways and their deeds, you see these people who've made it. Remember, these are the ones who survived. These aren't the ones who died in the disaster. These are the paragons of righteousness. These are the quote-unquote righteous ones, the, the, the bare minimum I've survived. And when you see them coming out, you're going to understand, wow, if these are the ones who made it, what were those who didn't make it like? You're going to be consoled that I have not done this without cause. And so it's like, if this passes for righteousness, if these are the elect survivors, if this is the remnant, man, those other ones really had to be bad. And of course, that's really, really cold comfort. And so it's not really comfort at all. It's, just, it's showing you the justification, the rationalization of what's going on and, and, and things of that nature. And so, wow, that's potent, that's powerful. And that really testifies to what Ezekiel's trying to show here, which is God is completely in the right to be judging and condemning Jerusalem and Judah and his people for their iniquities. And it's ugly, it's awful, you don't want to see it. it. You might have theological questions. And of course, that's the whole thing going on here, the theological questions that come out of this, like, how can you say God is loving and caring and wonderful, and yet this is what he does to his own people? Well, it's because God has standards. And if you, you you want God to have those standards, you may not like it when they're applied, but you want him to have those standards because you really wouldn't think that God is so loving if he could just stand idly while all this awful stuff goes on. And that's an important lesson for us to this day, that sometimes we see God's judgments, we may not like them. We might wonder how God could be, you know, loving and but yet do these judgments. And yet we don't, we also in the same time see arguments, well, how can God love us and yet see all this ugliness and awfulness going on all around us? Well, his judgment just takes longer. His patience is a little bit longer. But when it happens, boy, it happens. And you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. We're glad that you've joined us again. We hope that you benefited. We look forward to continuing with Ezekiel. And may God bless, guide, and direct you until we're able to meet again.